This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Julie from Forgotten Classics and Good Stories Hard to Find. Hi, I'm Seth. Hi, I'm Rose. And we're going to talk about The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. And we're probably going to only be mostly talking about the the later version, the 1891 version. Uh, I know a little bit about the 1890 version, uh, but I have not read it. I just read all the notes about it in the regular version, you know, the differences between the two. Did anybody read the 1890 version? No. No. Okay. But but I have not, I haven't uh, examined it. That would okay. be interesting. I was going to say, I listened to, um, I would like to give a little promotion for Heather Ordover's Craftlit version mm. of the picture of Dorian Gray. It's in her premium feed, but I think you can also buy it at her shop for a very reasonable price, you know, really cheap. But she, of course, has the audio book in there, but she also has her own commentary, and she did such a job. It's like a college class. And she would go through and say, now this chapter wasn't in there. Let's think about the difference that would have made. So that was really helpful going through going, wow, they were missing like the last third of the book mostly. So Mm -hmm. um, that, that was almost like having the critical version just kind of pop up every so often. So, yeah, there's lots of line changes as well. Line by line changes. Um, I want to start off though. I was re-listening to the beginning and, uh, and it struck me very much that I'd heard something like this before um, in, a, in a later book. So I want to read this and then uh, see what you think. Uh, so this is right from chapter one, first paragraph. The studio was filled with a rich odor of roses, and when the light summer wind stirred amidst the trees of the garden, there came through the open door the heavy scent of the lilac, or the more delicate perfume of the pink flowering thorn. And I was what what is the pink flowering thorn is that a rose and then it doesn't say <laughs> starts describing uh the uh henry wooten's um saddlebag divan <laughs> a very and then uh i guess sir henry shows up um very shortly lord henry's smoking his his uh endless cigars or cigarettes but uh, i just uh, what is anybody know what a pink flowering thorn is no, not familiar no. with them. No. So, uh, Mark Twain wrote a <laughs> book in 1912. Uh, I think it was 1912. We did a show on it. I did it with um, Paul Weimer uh, called "A Double-Barreled Detective Story," mm-hmm. which is a really funny book. Uh, very sort of disjointed because it's got a sort of a first half and a second half, and I'm not sure how they connect very well. Um, but the second book of uh, uh, sorry, chapter four of of the first book has a chapter starting very strangely, um, and it starts like this. It was a crisp and spicy morning in the early October. The lilacs and laburnums lit with the glory fires of autumn hung burning and flashing in the upper air. A fairy bridge prov- provided by kind nature for the wingless thing- wild things that have their homes in the treetops and would visit together the larch and the pomegranate flung their oh and would visit together the larch and the pomegranate flung their purple and yellow flames in brilliant broad splashes 
Along the slanting sweep of the woodland, the sensuous fragrance of innumerable deciduous flowers rose upon the swooning atmosphere. Far in the empty sky, a solitary esophagus slept <laughs> on motionless wing. Everywhere brooded stillness, serenity, and the peace of God. Wow, is he making that's, fun of somebody? <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite description of flowers ever. I like know. The single esophagus. It's all esophagus. crying out. Well, um... A crisp and spicy morning. So, well, the mm, other thing, though, like is... Bacon. Oh, yeah, it's a wonderful taste of... Um, the, the Oscar Wilde thing is a wonderful taste of the fact that he goes into these elaborate descriptions that if you know what everything is, they all mean something. I mean, it's chock full of symbolism and stuff, but you have to know, otherwise it's like Mark Twain. Well, and the wonderful thing about the descriptions, too, is that they're elaborate and they are, um, like, there's that one catalog about all the oriental texts that yeah. Dorian's reading and all of that, and it's it mm-hmm. it can bore you to tears, but then you realize that's the point of what Oscar Wilde is getting at, the the uh, monotony and tedium of of this kind of life. Mm-hmm. There's, there's uh, something, good. something, though, also about the way this book is written about Oscar Wilde. Like, I, I really enjoyed uh, his plays that I've read. Uh, I don't think I've ever... I've seen the movie versions of uh, at least one of the plays, um, and I've read his his short stories. But I was really hating this book uh, a lot during the reading. Um, and I think it's because of uh, Sir Henry and his epigrams. You know, he's like... He, he would say every, all these things, right? And it's supposed to be a serious book, I think, but it's also because it has a serious topic. But he's just so flippant, right? And I think there's something interesting because unlike his plays, which are, I think, you know, out-and-out entertainment, they're not supposed to right. be savage critique of, uh, of, you know, society. He loves society, Right. He he, he right. to show off his his awesome witticisms, right? Um, this is this is sort of like the dark side, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> it's totally like the dark side. Like I said, totally like the dark side. Um, but Sir so, Henry is a figure that is exactly what thoughtless people do. They're more interested in being clever than ever. Yeah delving deeper so i think that's exactly right and so yeah. that's why i was like i mean it, there's nobody really likable in this book right there's people who only who basil but even basil's weak yeah well, true yeah what about he's very that's interesting. one who introduces him to his first sin yeah inadvertently vanity so, yeah yeah, I mean, we, the book the book kind of tells us that that Dorian's wish is this kind of Faustian pact to not, you know, all the, the traditional Faust stories are. Oh, I want knowledge or power, mm-hmm. and it's it's telling that Dorian what Dorian wants is to trade his soul for eternal beauty. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, it, the book the book casts the blame on Dorian, but um, Basil and his obsession at the beginning of the book with this painting it it really comes from him, I think. In a, in a big way, so. Yeah, that's true. And the funny thing is, though, is that 
the beauty is what inspires Basil to make something that is so amazing as this painting, which I loved the line where um, it's just Basil and Sir Henry, and he's saying, don't say such things in front of um, Dorian. And he goes, well, which one? The real one or the one in the painting? Because <laughs> they're so identifiable. I mean, you know, they're identical practically. Yeah. Um, and so it's that very beauty that inspires him to those heights as an artist. But you're right. I guess it's the weakness that allows it to go beyond being a piece of art because he puts some of himself into it. Well, there's but a whole it's... preface to this um, that Oscar Wilde wrote. Um, where that also the... pisses me off. I really hate I, 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 I ended up hating Oscar Wilde through a lot of this book. Wow. Because, because he's... He's trying to do one thing, and then he's 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 saying you can't criticize it. That's what that every and he does it in the exact same way. So all these epigrams, like this epigrammatic writing, I was reading a lot about how you know this is the height of his you know his ascendancy is sort of and this is the sort of turning point right where a lot of people turned on him because of this book they say because it's gay right there's a lot of well, it was used in the trial, yeah, a lot yeah. of pieces of it, without looking and, at the whole thing, which is super moral. Um, well, and not to mention, you know, we should maybe be persecuting people for what they do <laughs> yeah. in their beds well, and such. Let's, but, let's stop for a second and say he brought so much of that on himself because he was so much like Dorian in a way that he was a celebrity yes. before he'd even done anything, and he toured America and been feted because he was so clever. So he came back. And when, you know, he's he's going to sue his lover's father for libel and everybody, all his friends are like, no, 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 no. Shh. And then when he's going to take it further, they're like, OK, now's the time you should like Basil time to go to France. He's like, no, no. And so it's his own pride. He himself is Dorian also. And Basil's trip to France doesn't work out. though. <laughs> no, Basil should have kept going. Um, it was sad yeah, for Basil. But the whole thing that I found interesting was at the same time that we're looking at Dorian, this is so insightful to so many things of the dark side of what uh, being this giving into the senses and the Rose, you talked about to me about the decadent movement and all that kind of thing mm-hmm. do at the same time that he was participating um, and and this this preface was put on in the second edition to kind of go, you guys, you cannot take everything that somebody writes as an indication of their inner person. But at the same time, he wasn't helping. I mean, it's really yeah. complex. But it's not, you look it's at book person. Like it, they're all, that's the thing is the way he argues everything right is is not like here are some facts and here's the support for those facts right. What it is, is it's turns of phrase, right? Julie, you've got a whole book of, you know, beautiful quotations, and I bet there's mm-hmm. some great Oscar Wilde ones in there. Right? I don't re- think so. I don't remember now. I, I would bet there are, because he's so good at it. He, he reuses some of the ones that are in here in his mm-hmm. other uh, I think there's one. Uh, uh, people today know the price of everything. In the co- No, it's the cost of yeah. everything and the price of nothing, yeah. right? There's so it sounds, sounds wonderful. Brilliant. Uh what is that a criticism of? It's not. It's just a all of these sort of phraseologies, including in that preface, are you know the little epigrams, the little witticisms, are completely unsupportable. In you know, like everything Henry, uh, Henry says is just 
not supported by anything. Well, it's just something he says. Well, so the what, preface, what are the so, examples? Uh, go for it. And I wish I had taken notes now. Um, this is one of the things I liked about what Heather Ordover did. She went through it like little section by little section and then put the whole thing together. And it actually was making a really definite statement about art and what the artist is and what how art affects us. And it wasn't unsupported, but you had to really stop and think about it. And actually, I know what you mean, Jesse, because I found this book extremely difficult. I loved the parts that he deliberately wrote in the Gothic style. The parts uh, where Dorian's being tempted, the parts at the play. There are good things in here. And I, I right, got and, and, and the stuff with Basil being killed and all those things. But the other stuff, I felt like was such a drag, I really needed help. And that's where her. I had to have something like that to help me get through the book. And I kept thinking of people, Seth, I think you said you love the book. And Rose, I know you love it. And I kept thinking... What are these people seeing that I'm not seeing? Because I was like you. I kept going, ugh, again. And it can be difficult to get through because Oscar Wilde himself said that he had a really hard time with anything other than people sitting around tables and talking, which <laughs> makes sense. He's a playwright. A lot of what he does is dialogue. Yeah, well, he, he also is good at short stories, you know. But l- listen to this. So try and explain this in a you know, where he's grounding this. Those who find ugly meanings and beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. Okay, so uh, I'm, uh, where's his support for that? He's just asserting it. And I, think he says, we're making a I think we're making a mistake in taking this preface seriously. Um, I think yeah, while it's just like, like, I'm like defending Twain, or, Twain or even Poe, our writers, where anything they say, one of the first questions you have to ask is, should I take this seriously? Um, and certainly there's I good guess. stuff. I mean, yeah, but he, he's writing this as a defense, and he uses the same argument. Uh, what's interesting, though, is one of the... I was reading, like, in the decline of the epigrammatic uh, novel, right? There's not really much of an epigrammatic movement. <laughs> it's basically Oscar Wilde. The reason he is so famous for being famous is because of the things that he said. He'd, he'd, you know, go to a dinner party and he'd he'd say some witticism and everybody would be talking about it. And he became famous, uh, so famous that he went on tour in the United States just for being good at saying these witticisms, right? But I don't think he actually believes any of it. He's just, it's he believes all of it, but he doesn't believe any of the specific things he's saying. What he's doing is using linguistic, you know, sophistry uh, to show mm-hmm. his, his wit and intelligence, which is fine, but when, when we look at it in the context of this book, Sir Henry, one of the things he says that really struck me is that he says, all influence is immoral. And then, of course, he completely influences sure. that was the our main thing. character. That's right. And so this is fine with being immoral. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. He (laughs) He is. No problem with that. Yeah. But he 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 thinks, you know, what's he said? The seven deadly virtues, right? Yeah. (laughs) He just inverts everything. And this reminded me of another story, which I don't know if you guys have read, but I think is a really great little story by H.P. Lovecraft called The Hound. You Mm -hmm. guys read the story? No. I feel like I have. Okay, it's about two grave robbers who live in England and who go uh, who went on a expedition to uh, 
the Netherlands to dig up a wizard and steal his uh, his I don't know medallion, <laughs> and then they're ha- they're hounded uh, to their deaths. Um, but it's the reason they're doing this is because they are so full of ennui. <laughs> so I want to read the second paragraph from the Hound. Um, after the first paragraph is about how he's being chased by this Hound and his friend uh, is dead. Saint John is a mangled corpse. He says after being hounded by the Hound. Um, but this, here is the explanation for why they went and did what they did. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to so monstrous a fate, wearied with the commonplaces of a prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grew stale. St. John and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. Hmm? (laughs) Which is awesome. The enigmatic, uh, sorry, the enigmas of the symbolists and ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites all were ours in their time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the somber philosophy of the decadence could hold us, and this we found potent only by increasingly gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Huysmans, and Huysmans comes up uh, later, we'll talk about that, Mm. Huysmans were soon exhausted of thrills, till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course, which even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity, that hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave robbing. <laughs> and then later on, uh, they he, very shortly, I guess, Oh, yeah, I'll read this, too, because this is pretty great. This is Lovecraft, I think, responding kind of to the exact same thing as Oscar Wilde is working on. Um, They've created a black museum. He says, okay, so I'll just read it. It says, I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expeditions or catalog even partly the worst of our trophies adorning the nameless museum we prepared in this great stone house where we jointly dwelt. Alone... And servantless, uh, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable place where, with the satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi, we <laughs> had assembled a universe of terror and decay to excite our jaded sensibilities. It was a secret room far, far underground where huge winged demons, carven of basalt and onyx, vomited from wide grinning mouths, weird green and orange light, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled in ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death, the lines of red charnel things that had been hand-woven in voluminous black hangings. Uh, Through these pipes came at will the odors of our moods, sometimes the scent of pale funeral lilies, sometimes narcotic incense or imagined eastern shrines of the kingly dead, and sometimes, how I shuddered to recall it, the frightful soul-upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. (laughs) So the, the reason that these guys are being killed, uh, one's dead already and the other one's writing this journal uh, explaining why they're dying, is because they went, they went too far, just like Dorian Gray, right? But right. instead of being, you know, having a portrait in their basement or in their attic, they've got a black museum, which they just went too far and now they're being punished by a wizard. Yeah. 
etc. So uh, it, when I read the Lovecraft story, uh, I I I really enjoy it because it's so stupid. <laughs> it's so stupid and funny. Um, but also it's kind of scary because the way he's got it, he's got that that mood thing that he's so good at, right? Yeah, uh, I had I had another literary but, connection. Go for and it. It's a, li- it's a little uh, little further afield, but I think it I think it's somewhat appropriate. But it, Dorian made me think in some ways of The Great Gatsby. Okay. Um, not so much in obviously the the symbolism in in Dorian is a lot stronger, but. Um, you know, like Dorian Gadsby puts his best foot forward in in a big way, and he like um, like Dorian has skeletons in his closet. He he had a very rustic upbringing and kind of made himself in the world, and he's very hmm. tentative about about trying to hide all of that. And so, in some ways, it's it's a book about trying to overcome your past and um, can you can you brush away those those skeletons in your closet? And in both cases, it it doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, though about the preface that it's it probably wouldn't be right to say that it's completely irrelevant to the book because I think a lot of what's in it is the philosophy he espouses in the book. I mean, it yeah. starts out with the artist is the creator of beautiful things. To reveal art and conceal the artist is the artist's aim. And then it goes on to say, you know, how the critic and the spectator and everything goes in. And then it ends with all art is quite useless. And if you think about that in relation to Basil, who's the only artist in the book, mm. Basil is the one who causes the entire problem by putting too much of himself into art. His art wasn't useless. It was autobiographical, which the preface says is the lowest form of art. And actually, the only person who comes out of the book unscathed is Lord Henry, who never involves himself in his own art. That's interesting because... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think the actual problem with the preface is that it shows that Oscar Wilde can't adhere to his own philosophy because there's a lot of Oscar (laughs) Wilde in the book. Right. Yeah. That's interesting because the other thing that happens in this book is that when he's talking about it's the interpretation that everybody gives the art that gives the art its own its meaning that's exactly of course the problem with Dorian. Dorian allows that to influence him so much that he then is influenced by what he sees in the art. You know, yeah, oh, now his mouth is sensuous and everything. And he's like, well, crap. Well, now I, oh, I did one good thing. Did the art change? Mm-hmm. I mean, wow, yeah. it's, I hadn't thought of it in that really basic way of putting yourself into your art or what do you take out of art and how do you let it influence you? Because at the end or toward the end, they talk about that book with the yellow cover that he's given by yeah. uh, Lord Henry. Or maybe it's not the one with the yellow cover, but there's that book, and he says he was poisoned by a book. And so, therefore, he also, it's the same thing that the painting does to him. He allows the art to influence him in his search for his own him himself, essentially, yeah. but without standing strong for anything that is 
right or wrong. He's just allowing himself to be swayed by everything. And as his search gets more and more and more frantic, we see more and more of the problems. I don't buy the book argument too much. Well, I mean, a couple of things. First, um, his his first evil deed happens before he reads the book, um, and that is oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. civil um, civil vein, and that that whole relationship echoes perfectly what you're saying about this over preoccupation with art, because as long as Sybil is uh, Juliet or Imogen or Viola, um, you know she he is. He's all over that. He he's in love with her. As soon as she becomes herself, that's when the uh, the love affair ends for him. So he is perpetuating the mm-hmm. the same thing that that Basil has done. Yep. Well, I think that's, the book- that, that's where where you know the book has lots of cool things in it, and and that is you know that relate. That striking, you know, he's suddenly unin love with her because she's now a bad actor because she she is no longer living her art, right? <laughs> now she's just being her own regular self. Ugh. Um, well, the other thing I did want to say about the book, though, Seth, is um, I, you're right, but I think what it's showing is his further decline into evil because that then takes over his imagination, and after he's reading the book is when he starts to really get into um, all the different forms of art and, um, you know, the jewels and the yeah. um, clothing and the fabric. And it says um, he, there was a horrible fascination in them all. He saw them at night and they troubled his imagination in the day. Uh, the Renaissance knew of strange manners of poisoning, poisoning by a helmet and a lighted torch, by an embroidered glove and a jeweled fan, by a gilded pomander and by an amber chain. Dorian Gray had been poisoned by a book. There were moments when he looked on evil simply as a mode through which he could realize his conception of the beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so then that kind of, it's almost like he's experienced the painting and that's influenced him. He's experienced the art of Sybil which has gone on, and she's um, Sybil, you know, like the prophets. They changed yes. the spelling from the yeah. spelling Dorian, or uh, Dorian Oscar Wilde had given it. And then it kind of almost explodes into a complexity when, after he's read the book that just kind of carries him on into another form of experiencing it. But notice, uh, there's, there's so many good things to like. So this is where this, the book started to change for me was, was when I started realizing, because it's epigrammatic, or just like his writing, you know, like um, it, it, the the little things he says. So Sybil Vane is a reflection of Dorian Gray, and you say how? Well, they both kill themselves. Um, Sybil is a, a prediction, I had a predictor, and Vane mm. is uh, guess who that is? B A I N, not B A N E. Right. right. Um, and their deaths are terrible. Right? Oh, the vein is like a weather vane, which shows which way the wind is blowing. True enough. Yeah. True enough. Um, but I think, given how vain people oh, are, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's a triple, um, it also a triple pun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so because what's of course cool it's, is... It's blood, too. V-E-I-N is also, you know... Oh! We're telling a flood, yes. so yeah, you've got a triple well, entendre going there. Yeah. And when Sybil kills herself, she uses the, you know, they say they thought maybe it was lead poisoning. She no. Drinks, yeah, some, uh, what was it? 
It was like mm-hmm. makeup or something. Yeah, but it was something to do with the art she was involved with. The art. Maybe it's Maybelline. She... <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I yeah, because there was something, cool. and this was some of the stuff Heather was talking about, as they were talking about the old lady who had uh, her mother, who had um, this stuff on her hands, and I can't remember what it was, but it was iridescent. And so that you would show up under the stage lights really well and everything. Oh. But she liked it so much that she wore it all the time. That can't and be so that's, yeah, No, because there was a lead base to some of it. And so, yeah, that was a problem. And so when she was swallowing the makeup or whatever, I just kind of looked at that and went, oh. And her art has killed her because it was the only thing people could see reflected just like the painting. But, but also when she, her, her, she fails to... Uh, be able to produce the, mm-hmm. her art, right? When she, that's when she she must die, and she does die. Yeah, because she believed in the art so thoroughly that that's why she could be so genuine. And which I I had completely forgotten that, and I was like, what an interesting way to look at it that she could only so many, be a great actress that way. Yeah. So many interesting things. Like, so I want to talk about the yellow book uh, for a minute. So I, I love these sort of intertextual things where somebody, uh, you know, they're reading a book and then in in the book, a character's reading a book. Um, so this is apparently most the critics understand this to be an actual book from uh, France right. called uh, A Rebour or A Rebour. Uh, which is um, a, sort of a description, as, it, as it's described in the book, it's about a guy who who is very depraved and goes in to do all sorts of um, lascivious things, um, trying everything, right? Um, which it's, that's the movement. It's called decadence, right? Right. Where you're completely corrupt and you like it that way. <laughs> it's sort of a horrible thing to think about. Yeah, but the, gross, it, was, right? it was a very popular movement. Now, what's cool though is that this yellow book, he later says he he got 10 bound copies made from he, he had 10 first editions brought in from France and then he had them bound in different colors. Yeah. Right? And I was thinking that's interesting. But later on in the book, this is really interesting. After uh what's the painter's name? Basil. Basil. Basil Thor, what's his last name? I can't remember. Anyways, after yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh when after Basil is dead in the in the attic, um he has his man go out uh, and get the supplies for his his scientist friend, but more importantly, um he says to the to the servant, "I want you to also go and get me double the amount of uh what is it, orchids and no white ones and every color, but no white." Mhm. Right. And I was like, well, that's a very specific thing. Is it just to get him out and make sure that he doesn't have enough time? Well, yeah, but also, why not white? That's white for purity. Symbol, white is a symbol of purity. That's one reason. Uh, white is also a symbol of death. Right? You don't want to oh, right. give anybody <laughs> the idea that there's a dead guy upstairs. But also, if you think about what white is, is all the colors together, right? Uh, in optics. Oh, that's interesting. Right? And he wants to have every flavor of feeling and experience. That's what that's what Lord Henry teaches him, right? Is you have to indulge 
in every kind of experience because the only kind of art you can make, uh, he basically intimates, is that you live your life as a piece of art, right? Mm -hmm. And so it has to have every kind of color in it or at least be able to dip into any kind of color. Um, Yeah, but I also think it's interesting that a book that's solely referred to as the yellow book gets rebound into Indeed. every color. It seems he said, also he said like it's for every camouflage for it. Well, yeah. he says he said it so he could have it for every mood he was in. Also, right. though, it also seems like it's kind of camouflage of like it's not the yellow. It's not something someone right. would recognize anymore. It's not right. the yellow book that you just look at and you know. I will right. just point out, yellow in the Victorian days was like code for gay, homosexual. And they say, huh? It's the yellow 90s. Well, when it was written. Yeah. Well, also, though, I'm just saying it was kind of one of those things that like if you were in the right groups, you'd go, oh, it's yellow. It'd be like if we went, it's like in To Kill a Mockingbird, where they're all like, stay away from old man. He's drinking out of a paper bag all the time. Well, We know that's code for he's got a bottle of alcohol in there. Actually, he's got, of course, Coke, but which is the joke. But um, that's that kind of subtext that was known among certain circles. And so that's also adds a layer to what he's I want to I want to feel this way. I want to feel that way. He's experiencing everything on a lot of levels that way. (laughs) But what's also interesting is that as a consequence of this book, that is the picture of Dorian Dorian Gray, uh, there became a book called The Yellow Book. This is a magazine called The Yellow Book. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's very interesting uh, because it is associated with everything literary and um, sort of aesthetic, very sort of trending towards the French decadence. Um, And that started in 1894, and it went, uh, I think, for most of the 1890s. And once you start looking at, you know, it's called the Yellow 90s. That was how people referred to it in subsequent, uh, uh, you know, decades. Mm-hmm. So 1910s, they're, ah, back in the Yellow 90s. Why? It's not just about being gay. It's also about being sort of decadent and being um, an esthete and all those, you know, weird sort of things. But keep going. And you start finding all sorts of really interesting things. So, for example, in 1895, a guy named Robert W. Chambers writes right. a Yellow. series of connected short stories called The King in Yellow. I did think of that. Yeah. It's because... Some of the creepiest stories you've ever read. I haven't read all of them because I can't handle them. Well, not but, all of them are, are completely connected, uh, at least not obviously. But the first few, I think the first four are are all connected through this play. I'm um, sorry. Is, I'm terrified. I'd see a page of the play and I'd go nuts. I can't read it. <laughs> so you, you, only go, you only go nuts after the fourth uh, or the second act, I think. I wouldn't oh, be good. able to stop. I'm just like Dorian. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Rose, you were saying uh-huh. that you had, um, like your class, when you talked about this, concentrated on the decadent movement. That Oscar oh, Wilde we concentrated on um, the symbolism of artistic movements in the book. So Dorian was decadent. Um, 
but there's also a lot of um melodrama the the Vane family in mm-hmm. general is symbolic of melodrama um the mother who would who couldn't stop <laughs> acting even when she wasn't on stage um and um but i also think it's interesting that um Dorian seems like a byproduct of melodrama. His his when they talk about his mother and his father, um, it's a oh. very melodramatic story of um, his father being killed and his mother having married him against the wishes of her family, and he was born from that. And he becomes part of like a very important part of the decadence movement. Um. Whereas um, Lord Henry, who's really influential in the decadence movement, is never an active participant in it. Um, hmm. So a lot of it can be read as like an allegory for artistic movements, and that's what we concentrated on. Because yeah, I can the, see that. Was the decadence uh, movement a reaction against romanticism? It was a reaction against Victorianism. I mean, because Victorianism. Victorianism was very, like... Okay very much about morals. Well, buttoned down, um, and yeah. Decadence, in a lot of ways, embraced immorality. It was, you know, the beauty in all things, but also the beauty in immorality. So it wasn't just accepting of immorality, it was almost reveling in it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And that's what Dorian does. It starts out as he finds the beauty in beautiful things, um, like Sybil. Um, and even his first sin against Sybil is in a lot of ways a sin of thoughtlessness. He didn't mean anything by it. He wasn't intentionally trying to do harm. He reacted without thought, and Sybil killed herself. But as he goes on, as he looks for newer and newer sensations, eventually all that's left is what's evil. Yeah, the uh, the preface goes into this... um uh, discussion of artistic movements too. I think my favorite my favorite passage from the preface is the 19th century dislike of realism yes. <laughs> stems from Caliban the rage of Caliban seeing his reflection in the glass. The the dis, 19th century dislike of romanticism is the rage of Caliban not seeing his reflection in the glass. And of course that is exactly I the kind it. of stuff. Yeah, it, it sounds awesome, but did he do a study? <laughs> it's, it's, this is what I'm getting really annoyed by is, is that he makes this argument and then. Well, it's his view. He doesn't have to justify it to you. The whole book is that. I know, but but I think <laughs> we're, I think because of this awesome stuff that happens in it, you know, in the way he's done. This is a really important book, right? This is a really important book. Mm-hmm. But there's some horrible stuff in it. Not to mention the fact that the main character is a monster, right? Right. And the, at the end, we basically think, well, geez, that was depressing. <laughs> No, are you kidding me? I don't know. At the end, we go, this is he the Faustian story okay. told in a modern, a relatively modern time. It's one more time looking at it through a totally different lens, but it's the same story. It's the deal with the devil. And I, I want to talk about that it, Caliban. I know, but, but I'm just saying, you can't go, well, that was just depressing. It was, because we're not given something uplifting to make us feel better, but... It's the depressing fact of he was he was in this really, really artistic book. I feel he was being super realistic, which is why I find it so sad that um, 
so much of it was used against him without people looking at the context of the whole book. Because, you know, I get it. Everybody was outraged, and here we go, and he was his own contributor. But it's so real. It's that this very, very uh, constructed book, and some of the things that were hard for me especially, is all making a very real point in our own lives. I mean, because when Lord Henry says the only way to get rid of temptation is to give into it, we're all sitting there going, what? Yeah. The smallest child knows that's not true. So, um, no, you continue, please. But I was just like, sorry, I had to say it. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask, did anybody else notice the second time Caliban comes up? It's in the preface. Uh, and the preface is written after. Uh, I'm not sure it's written. So here's what happened in the chronology, right? He wrote the Lippincott's 13-chapter uh, version of the book, right? And then subsequently, uh, the critics came out and they... Uh, mostly savaged him. Um, w- uh, one of the reviews I read was uh, he had puppy number one says to puppy number two, <laughs> puppy number three, and and it was like this puppy wants this and that puppy wants that, and it, so it, not all of the criticism was like this is an immoral book because it's full of homosexuality and stuff like that. Some of it was just like this is bad writing. Yeah. Um, and other people were no, there's something important in here, but mostly it was negative. Um, then he wrote the, pre- the preface, but it was not published in um, uh, this first. It was published in a magazine just as a standalone article, basically in defense of what he had previously mm. written. And okay. then in the subsequent book publication, the, the volume publication, it uh, is put at the front as if it's a you know uh, forward or something. So it's not. I'm not sure if he was re- revising the book for the oh, second he, Taliban. Well, he also, keep in mind, um, Lippincott, before they published it, cut out a chunk of the book. The first uh, time. They yeah. cut out, uh, now I don't know how much, but it was like, was it 500? Couldn't have been 500 pages. But they cut out big pieces of the book. They looked at it and went, oh, no, we're not putting that in there. I'm, this is going to the public. So we don't know if what when he went back and revised it, of course, he had two things in mind. He may have been going, um, you cut out things people needed to know. But also he was, of course, defending it and going, OK, let me try and explain this better to you guys. You're not getting it. So continue. I'm sorry. I just wanted to add that to the chronology. OK, so, yeah, the important part is. The Caliban comes up again in later in the book, and I, I love the Tempest. I think it's a, just a wonderful story. Right. Oh, really yeah. funny. We talked about how I, I wanted to do a show on the Tempest, but it's <laughs> it's very hard. He does bring it up, though. He does bring it up, and one that. of the reasons one of the reasons is because of course she's acting Shakespeare, right? Uh, uh, Sybil Sybil Vane is the lead woman, and so in the the Tempest, she's Miranda, right? And in ch- at the beginning of Chapter 7, we get a revisit to the theater, and another thing that made me really hate on Oscar Wilde while I was reading this. And, um, and that's the way he depicts the Jewish manager. Oh, uh, yes. Okay, now, I don't know how anybody can read this today and not just be outraged by the... By the horribleness, because I've read a lot, a lot of Lovecraft. I read uh, uh, <laughs> last week, I think it was, uh, The Horror of Red Hook, and I had heard that it was the most racist of all his stories. 
And I came away from that going, eh, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> because I, I was expecting it to be really racist, right? And it is racist, but it's not really racist. The depiction of the Jewish manager is got to be close to the worst depiction of anti-Semitism I've ever read. Um, and in chapter 7, we get a little reminder of who he is. So uh, it says, For some reason or other, the house was crowded that night, and the fat Jew manager who met them at the door was beaming from ear to ear with an oily, tremulous smile. He escorted them to their box with a sort of pompous humility, waving his fat, jeweled hands and talking at the top of his voice. Dorian Gray loathed him more than ever. He felt as if he had come looking for Miranda and had been met by Caliban. Don't stop. Lord Henry, upon the other hand, rather liked him. Right. <laughs> uh, I like this. At least he declared least he, he did declared he... and insisted on shaking him by the hand and assuring him he was proud to meet a man who had discovered a real genius and gone bankrupt over a poet. And I do want to say that he is anti-Semitic in this, but um, he does at least, like most things, he's showing both sides because he does, say, you know, he's kind to the veins. He um, he has gone bankrupt over the, you know, so, yeah, it's anti-Semitic, but it's not, well, yeah, it's but not it's, just without, I mean, it, I'm saying that part's without basis, but he also, though, is, I felt like maybe he was making fun of Charles Dickens here frankly. Well, I don't know about that, but I want to talk about uh, how earlier he, he's... So is it, just, is it just Dorian Gray who's racist, right? And you'd think, well, that's possible, because the way it's being described here is almost from Dorian's point of view. It's not, you know, in his voice. But uh, that's not the case. If you look earlier, uh, I think it's chapter five, a hideous Jew in the most amazing waistcoat I beheld in my life, was standing at the entrance, smoking a vile cigar. He had greasy ringlets and enormous diamond blazoned in the center of a soiled shirt. Oh. Have a box, my lord, he said when he, was, he saw me, and he took off his hat with an air of gorgeous servility. There was something about him, Harry, that amused me. He was such a monster. So that's pretty awful. Yeah. Um, Next one, I, 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 I'm going to go through them all because I think there's something really interesting paralleling going on in this book. Um, so it, that's, that's from Dorian's point of view. This next one is not. It's just from the narrator's point of view, mostly. On the first night I was at the theater, the horror... Oh, no, this is, I guess, this is <laughs> still Dorian. On the first night I was at the theater, the horrid Jew came... Er- round to the box after, box after the performance was over and offered to take me behind the scenes and introduce me to her. He was a most offensive brute, though he had an extraordinary passion for Shakespeare. He once told me with an air of pride that his five bankruptcies were entirely due to the bard, as he insisted on calling him. He seemed to think it a distinction. That's not okay. Dorian? No, that, that is Dorian. I'm sorry. Okay. That is Dorian. Um, well, let's just start there. Okay. So, Dorian doesn't like him. Lord Henry seems to, like, be interested in this dude. Um, So I thought, well, that's interesting. Is this saying something about Dorian that's not about Lord Henry? Because Lord Henry, you can't trust anything he says, right? (laughs) He he says, uh, you know, marriage, everything about marriage is, you know, a lie. (laughs) And, 
Right. He's everything he says he doesn't believe, or or there's a line about how half of everything he says he doesn't believe and half he does, or it doesn't matter. We don't know what to think, but what we do know is that uh, in my subsequent research is that Oscar Wilde is completely and horribly anti-Semitic, not just in this story, but in you know his private letters and other you know mm. such things that are documented. All that being said. There's something really interesting that happens later on in the book. And that is Dorian Gray starts to resemble in his interests and appearance this fat Jew manager. Remember one of the things that is uh, describing him is he has a diamond emblazoned in the center of a soiled shirt. Yeah. Right? He's ugly on the outside, not just greasy hair and fat fingers with lots of rings on them, right? But he's got a soiled shirt and he's got a diamond. Uh, he's got, you know, a sort of a overly drama- dramatized, uh, uh, what's, it, what's he called it? Uh, gorgeous servility, right? Yeah. He, so he's disgusting in every grace and appearance. But on the inside, if you think about how this manager acts, the mom says something really interesting to the daughter, who also hates the manager. Um, she says, uh, Mr. Isaacs has been good to us. He lent us money to get us out of debt. Mm. Now, one interpretation is that, uh, and, and if you go with the uh, Dorian Gray being a book that's anti-Semitic, is that this is uh, the manager is actually not doing that because he wants to help, but rather because he wants to indent, put the daughter into indented, indentured servitude as at the theater forever, right? So she can never leave. They have to pay the debt over and over. And, and also, he's also trying to um, pimp her to... I feel like that's really reading into something we haven't been told. Right. It, it is reading it. But that's one interpretation people have done. But I think this is, uh, irregardless of what Oscar Wilde says, I think if you look at the text, it's quite interesting because he says, I've bankrupted myself five times over <laughs> the bard. Is that because he hates Shakespeare? No, it's because he loves Shakespeare. He loves the theater. And yes, he's disgusting on the outside as described. But on the inside, he seems quite like quite a nice guy. He's trying to help this young girl who is being uh, a great actress. He sees that greatness in her, and he wants her to succeed. Yeah, I was going to say, money to the mom, it never right? occurred to me until you were saying this. I'm like, oh, it's like Dorian is the... He's a reflection. He's, yeah, he's a reflection, but he's the... Good reflection. Yeah, he's a foil. He's a foil. Yeah. Yeah, you can't he's trust an honest and loving yeah. human being who you can't really trust appreciates the appearances. The you go from what's inside. Well, how yeah. do they how do they identify Dorian at the end when he's dead? They identify him with his rings. Covered in jewels and rings. Right. And, and remember there's a whole chapter yeah. going over and over how he's collecting all these jewels. Oh fascinating. Right? I love that. That is and so great. And he's getting all this material, all this cloth for his his home, right? It's, and he's talking about, uh, I, maybe it's only in one of the movie versions, he's about replacing the clothing on one of his, uh, in his away home. You know, he's got a, <laughs> a country yeah, home. That, but right. they don't talk about it much. 
No, but the important part is he is obsessed with exterior uh, appearance. And so when this horrible, you know, diatribe against Jews comes up in this, or at least this particular Jewish character who's got to mention every time you meet him, he's a Jew, right, is that's really strange now i love it though it's so insightful of both you and and oscar wilde of going whether he's anti-semitic or not to use that character which i you know because he disappears fairly early but if you cling on to that and think about how victorian england was in general pretty anti-semitic oh totally i yeah so um and it's not just Victorian England, it's Victorian America, too. Well, there's, no, a no. Story, yeah, yeah, there's a story yeah. by uh, Fitzjames O'Brien, who's actually he's Irish, who comes over to the United States. Fitzjames O'Brien, really good writer. Um, he wrote a story called The Diamond Lens, oh, yeah. which is a science fiction story about a guy who... You, you read that one? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a great story, right? Yeah. Um, he he has to use... He's a microscopist. That's his big thing, right? And he, he keeps trying to... He comes up with a dream to uh, look even deeper into the world's microscopy using a diamond lens. He gets uh, the recipe for it from, uh, I don't know, a gypsy or something, which is ridiculous. <laughs> um, who... who yes, a seance. She goes to a seance. He, he has a seance and consults, uh, I don't know... I was going to say Galileo, but he's not the microscopist. Whoever the famous microscopist is. And he says from beyond the grave, what you need is a diamond for your lens. So what does he do? He goes and finds a Jew, a diamond dealer, who is just as oilily described as in this story. Um, and then he murders him. Yeah. <laughs> it is okay, because he's... It yeah, doesn't he's count. Anyway. It doesn't count, because yeah. he he's a Jew diamond good. salesman. So... Yeah, it's yeah. Great. one he was well, Jewish. Right. Second, it's for the greater good. The casual <laughs> racism that this seems to be full of doesn't seem so casual if you glom onto it like I've done, right? And think about it all the way every time we meet this this character, the way the horrible Dorian acts towards him, and even the narrator acts towards him, is traumatizing <laughs> enough that you'll notice right. later on that Dorian Gray is exactly like well, this. Okay. One, one, one other thing I want to point out, this is why we cannot censor books, and people do, yep. because what happens is, in many publications, because it's public domain, anybody can make their own copy, many current publications apparently take it out and replace it with man yeah. instead of Jew, Yeah. right? Yeah. The hideous man in the amazing waistcoat. right. Uh, okay, even even if you you know start thinking I I'm totally on to this I I totally get it's a Jew anyways you wouldn't think to think about it it's it just takes away a lot of mm-hmm. what's going on in the book well and that's a good point because I've been um, rereading Uncle Tom's Cabin and of course it's full of you know words like nigger that nobody will ever say anymore because mm-hmm. unless you're a rapper or whatever but um. Because it's such an offensive word, but there's a very powerful point where one of the southern people has got a a New England cousin who's come to help take care of the household. And she's like, oh, I just can't stand to, you know, hug these people. And she'll never say the word. He's like, you won't hug the little black niggers. He goes, but we'll do it because we actually he's a nice guy. But he's like, because we actually love them. He goes, but you will talk about them generally, but can't stand to touch them. 
mm-hmm. know, and so it's if you take out all those invectives that we that shock us, even though back in that day they were common, but now they serve to shock us into awaken in a different way. So that's a wonderful point. I love that. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting, and uh, you know. Whether he is or not, if you start doing the research, there's there's one there's one article or one extract from a letter. Uh, this, this is what I, I thought maybe you know he's just brilliant. He's just brilliant and he's way ahead of his time. Um, but no, <laughs> sadly not. In the one letter, uh, he wrote to a friend how there's this uh, apparently there was a massacre in 1412 of uh, 18 Jews. Pers- uh, executed for the crime of something or other, and that we should be celebrating that day and do our, some of our own sacrificing. Now, uh, I think uh, yeah, totally uh, of Jews, <laughs> but I think um, part of this problem is because the way Oscar Wilde is sort of his personality is he just says things to shock people, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And I, whether he believes it or not, he's, he's he just yeah. loves. Shocking. That's his whole modus operandi, right? Well, he, he just shock. He said in one of his letters, um, because then I was going to say, well, he's like Lord Henry. And I remembered in one of his letters, this is, um, I wrote this down after Heather Ordover said it. He wrote to somebody, Basil, the artist, is who Oscar Wilde sees himself as. Lord Henry is who the world sees him as. Mm. And Dorian is who he would have been in another life. Yeah. And you don't know which stage of his life, but you kind of feel like he, you know, he recognizes that. And, and that makes that point of, you know, a lot of times artists pour things into books or movies or music that they themselves can't see until someone else points it out to them. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff going on that, you know, that's like you say, Jesse, that's why you don't censor stuff. And that's why other people get together and look at it because what's there is there. It yeah. just depends on how you see it. Um, yeah, and if if you smooth it all out because you're afraid to offend people, you end up with nothing, right? Right. Because as the years go by, there's an uh, accumulated, you know, spackle over. <laughs> well, so, yeah. Go ahead. It's it's one okay. of Chaucer's tales too. Is very anti-Semitic. It's you know it's about Jews going in and destroying either a monastery or or killing children or something, and it's it's just part of this irreconcilable problem that we have with authors who we love and admire and, and even idolize and just recognize that they have their flaws and blind spots just as you know, people going back and looking at our stuff a couple hundred years from now will be like, wow, I said that? That's horrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, like you said, Jesse, it's just really important to to not cover that up and to just accept it because it's it's there and it's part of their art. Well, it's also that part of history you know if you the people who don't know history are doomed to to repeat it you know we don't know what we're doing right now that we just can't see and in fact i can't remember i think it was with this movie group that i uh lead and we were talking about the movie philomena and everybody's you know busily condemning the 1950s you know irish catholic church and i was like okay but let's look at one of the beautiful things about the movie was it was talking about you get past it by forgiving and moving on, right? Mm-hmm. But I said, but what are they couldn't see that then, or they would have stopped it, or somebody would have stopped it. I'm like, so what are we doing 
that in 50 or 100 years or 200 years, everybody looks back and cringes at. And they're like, oh, no, I have a nephew who's gay and it's all right. And I'm like, I write. I get that. <laughs> but what else are we doing that we can't see? That's something any, that people in the past put, would not have gotten. I'm saying. Anytime you put a taboo on like like power, looking at power, right? So you're not allowed to talk about this. You're not allowed to look at this. This is we just trust them. That's where things go wrong, right? You put somebody, any person, into an institution and then say no accountability. What happens? Corruption, well, yeah. right? Horrible, horrible corruption. Well, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Without enough oversight or enough other ways to look at. It. But anyway, so the whole thing was they couldn't. They finally, it took about five minutes of me talking about different examples, going, they didn't get that. They didn't get that. We're doing something we can't even imagine it. That's why this conversation's hard because we're in the middle of it. We can't see it. We're standing outside of these other times. Hopefully we get those lessons for our time. And they're like, oh. So that's what this does. Um, this is the second time I've read this book, but it's, oh, my gosh, I read it so many years ago. I didn't even remember that poor Basil was murdered. I didn't know that at all. I was stunned. And Jesse, is this the first time you said you've read it? Yeah, I didn't, okay. had not read it before. How about Me you too, guys? Yeah. Oh really? So yeah, I've never read it. It's, okay. Yeah. Everybody knows the story, right? Right. What, what's Rose, interesting? Wait, just, just, uh, Rose, oh, how many part. times? I read it at least two times before. Okay, because you love the book. Yeah. Did you see a lot of things here since you've read it and remembered it? Did you see things here that you hadn't seen before, or did it just emphasize them, or? Um, I mean, I'm it was curious. little things, you know, um, like the um, considering how important Victorian art is in the book, I thought it was interesting that Lord Henry's wife is named Victoria, <laughs> um, and she's always falling in love, and she actually was- leaves him in the end, and he says once he leaves her that he's lonely because he get, he got used to having her around. Um, so it's interesting that he's such a, a great influence for the decadence movement. And then Victoria, obviously, is representative of the Victorian art movement, that they're married, um, and that he misses her when she's gone. And so it's hmm. things like that that I'd okay. never noticed before. Why do you think it's not called a portrait of Dorian Gray rather than a picture of Dorian Gray? Well, the book itself is the picture of Dorian Gray. Uh, I think that that's got to be the reason, right? Oh, you guys are so smart. <laughs> Never thought of that. But I'm really bad about looking at title, uh, like chapter names and uh This one doesn't have any connect- No, but I just mean in anything. I'll go back and look at something and go, oh, it's called this. Oh, <laughs> now yeah, I yeah. got it differently. I just, I'm terrible about ignoring that stuff. So T- Titles are really important. I yeah. Uh, I, I'm also reminded of an earlier story, uh, Oval Portrait, which you read for me. Thank you, Julie. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, by Edgar Allan Poe. You guys all read that story? Nope. Oh, you should. It's very short. It's like three pages long or something. <laughs> um, it's short. It's very And short. it's mostly framing story at the beginning, and then mm-hmm. there's a, a little thing at the end. Yeah. Um, and it's about a, an artist who has um, painted a portrait of his wife, he loved painting her so much he put all of his his effort into it that he killed her. <laughs> he drew her soul into the into the uh 
the painting, and it, the very last stroke is when she died. It's perfect. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now he has her forever. <laughs> I, was, I have to say, this book, although on its own, I found it difficult, especially those long, you know, descriptive chapters, which, again, listening to that commentary kind of opened all that up into what he was saying with all those things. Everything he described had a reason and a purpose. And if you knew the culture, then you would get a lot of that or, you know, the people who really cared about that. But to me, what was interesting was considering this in terms of also the Canterville Ghost, which he wrote before this, which is such it's hilarious, of course, and it's poking fun at the British and the Americans, but it's such a redemptive tale that and a sweet story in many ways. And I look at that and I look at this and go, wow, those are like mirror images also of what was going on inside him and how he thought. And then also, I feel like the picture of Dorian Gray is as if he took Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Mm-hmm. Jekyll from Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde. Sorry, Mr. Hyde. I get mixed up. Uh, if he, as if he took Mr. Hyde from Stevenson's story and just projected it. And they say that there are some parts of this book that are obviously homage, like he's lifted lines or just changed them slightly and using them because he loved that story. And I love that story so much. And so when I think about all three together, it's almost like those three are a perfect read to consider this Mm. whole issue of how do you become who you are? How do you balance good and evil? How do you um, take in all the things of the world and either deal with a corrupting influence or not let it corrupt you? Because that's essentially, to me, of course, again, what the story is, because looking at temptation and I mean, it starts in a garden. They and that's where Lord Henry first uh, the stuff where Dorian says, "I'm thinking about everything differently just based on what you said," which also goes along with the poison of the book. Um, but and Henry, huh? and Henry's wreathed in smoke. Ooh, that's right. Ooh, and. Um, they say, what do you want? Basil says, I'll have the servant send you out whatever you want. He goes, oh, something with strawberries, says, I think, yeah. Henry. So there's the fruit aspect of it. And I realize that's in that sense, I'm bringing that to it. But I'm like, you can hardly miss the fact that if this is a Faustian tale, um, that kind of a morality tale, you've got this real specific setting to launch the whole thing with. And so... All those things are woven in here. So even if, you know, the time period is difficult or how Oscar Wilde personally thought about Semitism or anti-Semitism or whatever, it's got that it works with those other two stories so well in just kind of looking at this issue, because that's the issue we all deal with all the time. You know, how do you stay true to yourself and how do you become more of what you want to be? How do you even know what you want to be? I'm done. Yeah, I, I think that Henry's right in a certain sense that your your life should be like a piece of art. You try to make it better. Don't try to make it worse. And that at the end, you should have a nice picture. Um, yeah, what was it right? Oscar Wilde wrote in a letter or said at the end of his life, he's like, I, I only, my art was just my talent. 
my my life was my art or something like that. Mm-hmm. Which uh, maybe that was in that article. I sent you guys a link to this thing called. Um, the Long Conversion of Oscar Wilde. And it's really, actually, it's long, but it's like, I printed it out, it's like three pages long, but it's um, really kind of an interesting overview of his life, if you want a quick overview of it. Mm-hmm. And um, because he always had this very interesting flirtation, which Dorian Gray has, where they're like, people always wondered if he convert to the Catholic Church because he was so interested in all the rituals and the robes yeah. and richness. And like, but he never did. He was interested in too many other things. And um, Dorian Gray, or Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde, obviously I connect them. Um, he <laughs> kind of had a similar flirtation where he'd, like, he got out of jail and went to the Jesuits, I think in France or something, and went, please let me go on retreat. And they all went, unfortunately, are you kidding me? No. <laughs> and, um, but then he went on his own retreat. He went to his lover's house in France, and he did his own kind of like six-month retreat. And then he'd kind of go back into decadence and come back out. And so he wound up with a deathbed conversion, so you hope he wound up differently than Dorian Gray. I mean, but it's um, – I just see all that reflected in this book, of course. His whole life is – he's kind of like he's the picture of Dorian Gray in a sense, which struggling differently, of course. I wanted to just give you a picture of the yellow 90s. Uh, this is literary books, came out in the yellow 90s. Okay, so Stevenson, I think, is 88. Is that right? 1888? The uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Oh, okay. I, um, I think it is. It could be wrong. I believe. Um, it's not in the 90s, I'm pretty sure. Uh, one of the things, though, is that uh, this is interesting, came up in my reading. Um there were this is the very first book where you could actually use the word spoiler as actually a really important uh, <laughs> phrase yeah. when we read this book just like Dorian Gray we know what it's about it's in the culture so much but in uh strange case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde it's not revealed until the end that they're the same guy. That's right. So if you're reading through it, you would not know that. Now, uh, having that in the background for Dorian Gray, actually, you know, Dorian Gray doesn't even try to hide the, well, he doesn't hide it from us. We know about the painting right away, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But if you told the story, uh, uh, he's got a secret. What is his secret? He's got a painting up in this, and then you find out at the end, there's an ugly painting of him, you go, what? What a ripoff. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, well, Henry asked what the secret is. Uh, I liked, interestingly, yeah. also, that, remember his scientist friend? I can't remember his friend's name. Alan, I think, yeah. 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 I thought, myself, that that was, he should have been named uh, Dr. Jekyll. Because <laughs> he just oh. said a couple of words, and then, uh, I, and, yeah. uh, forgive me, because I watched every movie version I could lay my hands on. So I can't remember what the book says versus all the movies. But uh, when that French, or what, not French, that enemy turns up, you know, former friend turns up, he does so reluctantly, and I'm not going to help you. You've murdered someone. That's horrible. That's your fault. I'm not getting involved. And then Dorian Gray says something to him or shows him a letter. Yeah. And he just, fine, I'll do it. I need my equipment. I hate you. <laughs> that, I, <laughs> Um, and, and whatever it is that he's hiding, sorry. Does he commit suicide later? 
he does l- later commit suicide. Yeah, yes. so um, whatever he's hiding is just as bad. And uh, what I think is so interesting is that this book really applies to the entire Victorian society, right? Is that he's he's saying that's what we're all like, and that's what Stevenson was saying too. So Dorian Gray is saying the same thing as Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde is saying it a different way. Um, but mm-hmm. subsequent to Dorian Gray coming out, listen to the books that came out in the 1890s. Uh, first, Sherlock Holmes, 1891. Uh, Test of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. I haven't read that one. Charlotte Perkins Gilman, 1892. That's the next year. The yellow, uh, yellow paper, wallpaper. Which is another yellow, right? Yeah. Another tripped out. Uh, I haven't thought about yellow. that, yeah. Um, 1895, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. 1896, The Island of Dr. Moreau, another one about horrible Victorian values, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, Heart of Darkness. Oh, oh. Uh, first, w- War of the Worlds, 1898, and then Heart of Darkness, 1899. And Heart of Darkness is really the capper, right? Is that Joseph Conrad? Conrad, yeah. 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 I, or whatever his name. Yeah, uh, wow, I didn't realize that was that early. I think or of that, that as being a more modern novel. Yeah, it's kind of a modern novel. They're, well, I just mean I, oh, like, I early, Dracula, like 1930. Yeah. So this is a really powerful year for stories, or decade, I should say, mm-hmm. not year. Um, if we had, if we have uh, a Heart of Darkness, a Dracula, a Time Machine, Island of Doctor Moreau, War of the Worlds, uh, Yellow Wallpaper, a uh, picture of Dorian Gray, all coming out within ten years, our mm-hmm. decade would be a great success, I would think. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't think our decade will be that great success, um, but I could be wrong. No, we can't tell because we're right in the middle of it. That's the that's problem, right? That's right. Will the, will, will the books that we're talking about today be remembered in uh, 120 years? Yeah, well, will probably not the Rosie Project, I'm thinking, but, but I, <laughs> I love know. it so much. <laughs> I can't help them. All, all those... Um, puns that Fred was um, posting on Twitter, I can't help thinking of Fifty Shades of Torian Gray. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's writing it right now. Great. <laughs> oh, there were so many other ones. Well, that's, that's what his name means, right? It, it, is that he's not, he's not pure. Right, he's not exactly. Black, uh, because we're sympathetic to him, uh, even when we don't want to be, and he shouldn't have any sympathy for us. Are we sympathetic? I was not sympathetic. I am sympathetic very occasionally. I think his big problem is is that he was influenced badly. Right? Oh, yeah. Um and and because of his the corruption that Lord Henry, I think it's mostly Lord Henry oh, does. Yeah. Um is it's it's cruel. And he says all influence is is immoral. And he's right in this sense that his influence is immoral. Right. Well, and but it takes hardly anything for him to get involved with that. I mean, all all Henry does is say a few things to him, and then Dorian can't stop thinking about it. He's a young, impressionable, stupid guy. Well, <laughs> and, but in a way that Basil is not influential to him. Um, because Basil's not trying to influence him. Basil's just thinking about himself and how much he loves Dorian. He's not thinking, and and Henry, 
on the other hand, is also not really thinking about Basil except to see what happens when I nudge him, which is so evil. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's exactly right. Um, and uh, what's the, uh, uh, this is in the book, I hope, that there's a, the test he gives to Sybil, Bane. I can't remember now. I, what I is have it? One. Uh, he says to her, maybe it's in one of the movie versions. I, I watched like four movie versions, <laughs> um, and and the audio drama too. Uh, there's a scene where he says, uh, "Will you stay tonight?" Um, oh no, that's of, okay. Yeah. So uh, let me just recap the movie versions for you. 1945 version, very very good, very faithful oh, to the book. Yeah? Mm, okay. Really quite a good movie, and it's black and white. But when you when you see the the painting. It's in color. Oh, <laughs> it's a shock. oh my god! It's a real shock because I, uh, they show the finally reveal the paint the painting for the first time, and you see this you know bright young. It very works well with the medium, right? And then when it goes cuts away from the the painting, it's like what what happened? So the first time it happened to me, I'm like, hey, was that color? <laughs> I just didn't notice that it had switched until it goes back to the gray. Yeah, uh, palette of you know the Fifty Shades of Grey of film or silver or whatever, <laughs> right? Um, so that that one is excellent. Then there's the 1973 version, which is uh, on YouTube in one big um, file, which is really good. That, yeah, it's a very it. good one, and it's it uses a lot of the uh, elements that are in the the storytelling elements from the the 45 version. The you know the way it's told they they stream down the the, the plot in the same way, um, but it's done by the people who did Dark Shadows. So if you know that style, uh, I don't know Dark Shadows, but mm-hmm. it felt yeah. very much like what it was. It's shot on videotape, mm. <laughs> and, uh, and Angela Lansbury's in the Lansbury's in the, Angela Lansbury's yeah. in the 45 version. Murder yeah, she plays so Civil Vane. Oh, she's Dang. so good. Um, then there's the 76 version, which, get this, Julie, it stars Jeremy Brett uh, as the painter. Really? And I was like, who is this guy? His voice is so familiar, but he's really young, and he's got a beard. I thought so I was going, like, who, who's Jeremy Brett? You don't know Jeremy Brett? Who is he? Oh, he's he's the greatest Sherlock Holmes. Uh, from. Oh, the- him. Okay, see, I don't oh. really like to watch the Sherlock Holmes things. Oh, well, well, I just, you know, it's like in air. It's in my head. I I know I've seen the things, but I usually am like, I know the story. I don't care. There's uh, also a 2009 movie, and it is horrible. Really, really horrible. Why am I Um, not surprised? It looks beautiful, but they they turn it into a horror movie, um, like with jump scares and stuff like that. Um, and the painting is always like growling and is it leering. Out, yeah. yeah, it's like coming out of the frame, going yeah, like that. <laughs> it's like like dripping, you know, I don't know, <laughs> bugs from its eyes, and it's really horrible. Um, everything about the movie is horrible. They also delete the painter basically, um, oh. and just make it all Lord Henry, uh, who's played by Colin Firth. Oh. Uh, in a very, Good. you know, he's very good at it, but. Oh, the lines are so hackneyed. Almost none of the the Oscar Wilde is in it. But Who the 45, it's very okay. faithful. I don't know. Okay. The 2009 okay. is a monster. Okay. Whoever it was, avoid him. Yeah. 
the Sybil character drowns herself in the river and then oh. haunts it for the rest of the movie. It's it's mm. terrible. <laughs> they, terrible. Yeah, they're like, there's not enough here. I better put some more stuff in. Yeah, it's like, we can do this better than the book. But the 45 is very subtle, too. It, it doesn't make you, uh, like, it, the Jew, Jewish manager is just, he's barely there. He's not even Jewish, I think. He's just <laughs> in the background. It's not important. Uh, so that's streamlined. And also the gay uh, stuff, well, uh, admiring yeah. young men, is way toned down. Is that way the, toned down. Is that the it's one there, where but, he's engaged or something to someone at the end, there's one of them where, again, this is from Heather yeah, Whatever. Yes. She's yes. like, because um, there can't be a whisper in 1945 that there could be that element to it. So he's got a fiance yeah. who's very perky and sassy and all this kind of stuff. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Got it. His second fiance, yes. Um, she's uh, the daughter of the painter. Okay. Oh, no, niece, no, niece of the painter. Okay. And then they do a couple of clever things to, but that one is definitely worth watching, the 45. Yeah. With Angela Lansbury playing Sybil Vane. The, the, the one thing that you will appreciate on film is that every male Dorian Gray, obviously every male Dor- every Dorian Gray yeah. is always really handsome oh. at first, right? His well, painting, yeah. not so much. But Until the end. The actors are incredibly handsome. They're, in fact, so handsome, you'll never see them in any other films because they're too pretty for film. <laughs> that's you know? Oh, that's that reminds me of something that I did love from the book because about, what, three-fourths of the way through, he's, you know, wandering around the opium dens and things like this. And um, I I suddenly was going, they're making the point really strongly right now, or all Oscar Wilde is, It's it's been 18 years. And I'm thinking... Why is no one asking why he looks identical to the way he did 18 years ago? And finally, Lord Henry goes, yeah. you really must tell me your secret to staying young sometime. And I'm like, thank you, because I'm thinking somebody should be mentioning this. So, um, well, yeah. Lord Henry's response is, I'll do anything as long as it doesn't involve diet or exercise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned or clean male. Yeah. You mentioned male Dorian Gray's, and one of the one of the jokes that uh, Fred <laughs> did in Twitter was they should do a modern version called the selfie of Dorian Gray. But yeah. I actually think you know you could do a, a reimagining of this with gender, um, with modern gender views, um, because um, particularly with women, you know, our culture is so physically focused on women being beautiful. You're and right. It was back then too. Uh, yeah, what's it interesting was. Is, is Oscar Wilde is. Totally gay, right? Yeah. He, he, well, he, he, actually, technically, he's not totally gay. He's just really quite gay. So he really liked young men. And in the trial, as you know, we know, uh, in, if you've seen the Oscar Wilde movie, uh, Wilde, uh, with Stephen Fry playing Oscar Wilde, um, they they quote from the book, which happened in the actual trial. Right, right. Um, and he just said, I love spending time talking to young, attractive men. <laughs> it's like it's just you know you can you can call me a bastard you can call me whatever you want but it's I just love it and I would much rather be doing that than standing here talking to here to you it's <laughs> his mouth he should have shut up and he never his friends I imagine were just sitting there clutching their heads going Oscar I would like to strangle you um, one thing that I did think was interesting again I'm sorry to keep going back to this but it was just so insightful um, Heather Ordover said because she had been reading through a lot of the like new biographies or his letters and things like this. And she said she always had assumed, like I always had, that 
you know, he was married and had two kids, and she just assumed that he did that for convention. No. And um, she says, but what some of the new research seems to be finding is that he was kind of like Dorian in that he was just himself. And so he may have gone, this seems right for right now. This seems right for later. And it may not have been that way. It may have just been him going, oh, all right. Oh, but this is interesting, too. Yeah. So, I mean, and I thought, okay. oh, I never really thought of it that way because we're so good at wanting to put labels on everything. And he was practically... You know, he was he was out of any category because he was just out there. It's kind of like you were saying before, Jesse. He just he didn't have the filter he should have had in a lot of cases to help himself because he was so busy being himself. And also, you know, the term homosexual is invented in the 19th century. Before that, it's not like there was no such thing as homosexual people or homosexual activity. So it's just that. that's when everything gets a label, right? Is you know, flowers are labeled and species are labeled and people are labeled and you're you're hysterical or whatever. Well, he, yeah, he was on trial for indecency because they didn't have the word; they just it was indecent. So it was it would be indecent to say what he was on trial for. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.